Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, today I have Rory McDougall with us. Rory was suggested to be interviewed by one of my listeners, and Chris said, I enjoy your podcast and think that you underestimate how many listeners you have in the UK, me for one. If you're looking for someone to interview, may I suggest Rory McDougall? He sailed to James Wyrum Tiki 21 around the world between 1991 and 1997. If you would get a hold of him, I think it would be a fascinating person to listen to. Keep up the good work. Best wishes, Chris. So I have Rory McDougall with me on the phone right now, on Skype right now. Rory, where are you located? Hi there, uh, Franz. Uh, I'm well located at the moment in Exmouth in Devon in the UK. That's, that's home for now. Okay. Now, you have a pretty good story to tell. I went to your website, and I took a look at some of the pictures of your boat and your route around the world. So tell me how you came up with the dream of sailing around the world and how you got started. Okay, Franz, yeah. Well, uh, obviously it goes back a few years now, but um, back uh, when I was about 19, I was actually in Canada. And uh, with a friend of mine there, we're in a bar and uh, beers were flowing. And we were talking about different sailing uh, pursuits that were going on at the time. And uh, we talked about two French guys, or two Swiss guys, actually, that sailed across the Atlantic on a Hobie Cat, a Hobie 18. And uh, I said to my friend Jay at the time, I said, well, if they can do it, why can't we? And... Uh, after that night, sobered up the next day, and there was a seed. There was a seed of a dream that just wouldn't go away. And so day after day, it grew and grew, and I became almost obsessed with the idea of, uh, of sailing across the Atlantic in a, in a similar boat, a, a beach cat. And then the idea grew from there to say, well, if you cross one ocean and you're successful even if you're you know, fairly badly beaten up as far as your health goes. You rest, you recuperate, you get your stocks back, you get your, um, your health back, and you, uh, you embark on another ocean. And so at that point, nobody had sailed around the world on, a, on an open cat. And um, my dream was born to actually sail around the world on the smallest multi-hull um, craft and, um, and sort of sail into the record books that way. Tell me about the boat. You say it was an open cat. Didn't you have a cabin or, or anything? Well, yes. Initially, my, uh, my, my dream was to follow in the extreme footsteps of a beach cat, which basically has uh, just the trampoline in between. Um, something like a, uh, a Hobie 20 or a Tornado, that sort of thing. The, the, higher, the higher sort of lengths of the beach cats, because obviously we needed as much... Um, flotation in the hulls as possible to carry the uh, the meager supplies but 
the beach cat needed to be high tech. Obviously, I needed a survival gear, water maker, freeze dried food. Um, and the idea was to do a stunt, a sort of two year round the world blast to raise money for a charity as I went with all of the publicity that we would no doubt get. Um, and so I started the PR campaign of writing hundreds of letters to companies for, for support and perhaps sponsorship and uh, went to the Miami Boat Show while I was uh, in Canada. They gave me a free booze, so I rattled a tin for the cancer societies and, uh, and just tried to raise the profile and get some sponsorship behind me to, um, to start, the, uh, start the dream happening. So was that before you had the boat or after you had the boat? That was before. You know, I was a, I was a fresh-faced sort of 19, 20-year-old uh, with, with, um, with a big dream, but nothing really to show at that point. And so, you know, in hindsight, it's easy to see that people were very skeptical. Uh, and so what I've learned about these big dreams that you have, life dreams, is that uh, you have to be ready to change tack sometimes and not give up on the dream, but uh, realize that it has to be done maybe in a slightly different way or choose a different path to get to the goal. And so I actually came across the fact that uh, the James Warren Designs uh, had a 21 foot, a Tiki 21. And for me, that was the right size because at the time, I think it had been recorded that a 26 foot catamaran had previously sailed around the world. And so a 21-footer that's had cabin accommodation, and it was low-tech. I could build it myself and, uh, and embark upon my own journey. meant that it was far closer in, within my reach than, than the big, expensive, high-tech approach. And so that's where the big change of tack happened in the fairly early days of what boat to choose and the way to, uh, to, to go sailing around the world. So you built the boat, but you had to raise some funding before you built the boat, or did you start building the boat with your own funds then? Yeah, I, um, I, I sort of made that decision about six, eight months before um, starting to build the boat. I was still living in Toronto, and um, my, my good friend there, Jay, who was going to be my, my crew, my, my, my partner in crime, as it were, he, uh, he sort of started to get cold feet when he saw how serious I was uh, about, um, about uh, embarking on this dream. So I think his reality uh, became uh, a bit too, um, too crucial for him, and he decided to sort of step back from it all. So my, my stepbrother, actually, Barnes, who's living in the UK, he flew over to, um, to Canada, and we both spent the, uh, the summer with our heads down and bums up working as much as we could. And uh, we saved up pretty much enough to, to, to make a good start on building a boat together. And uh, so at the end of the summer of 1990, we, we flew back to the UK, back to Devon, which is where I grew up. And um, so therefore I had contacts and knew, knew the area uh, for, for um, looking for a place to build the boat and materials and uh, just, just getting, getting on with getting part-time work here and there as well. It was a far more known quantity than, than somewhere abroad. So in uh, late 1990, we, we moved back to the UK, moved back to Devon, and uh, started to build a boat.
Well, I'm looking at the pictures on your website as you're talking. And so it looks like it was a, a fiberglass, or not, not fiberglass, it looks like it was plywood covered with fiberglass. Is that the technique you used? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had some support from James Warren. I mean, at this stage of the game, my hundreds of letters and, and all of that sort of um, campaigning, as it were, for the, for the big sponsored uh, journey had uh, had had, had some limited success um you know it'd be nice to sort of shout them out as north sales had given us a a spinnaker (laughs) and uh timberland gave us some deck shoes uh regal compasses gave us a compass or two and uh, so we got a we got a little bit of support there and james warham himself actually he he gave us a set of plans to build the tiki 21 which was very, um, very generous of him. But he did sort of hand over the set of plans with a very stern look in his eye and said, you do realize that if you die, all my competitors will use this as good material against me. <laughs> <laughs> so so he, uh, I think he, he realized that there was a bit of his own spirit of when he set off across the Atlantic as a young man back in the 50s. I think he could see a part of me that was was a replica of his spirit of, of adventure uh, showing up on his doorstep. So, so yes, we, uh, we had a set of plans. But my stepbrother Barnes and I, we went down to Plymouth uh, in, in Devon here to, uh, to, to pay a visit to a guy that was building the Tiki 21 and the Tiki 26 out of GRP as a kit set, either to sail away or a complete boat, whatever you wanted. So we went down and saw um, Steve Turner of Imagine Multihulls at the time and uh, asked him what he might be able to do for us. And uh, he happened to have a hull of a Tiki 21 that had slightly moved in the mold when it was curing. And it was just sat outside his workshop and it had a slight, very slight wobble right down by the uh, lower bit of the keel. And uh, so I asked him about it, and he said, yeah, you know, you could have that one cheap. So we ended up buying a duff hull and got him to make us a, uh, a, another one to suit. And, uh, and that, that saved us a whole heap of time. And, uh, and within a couple of weeks of getting back to the UK, we had these hull shells, satin cradles in a barn that um, we'd uh, negotiated on to build the boat. And so for, for a huge morale boost, it gave us a great start to get in, into uh, building the boat. So you bought the hull then. So both the hulls you bought then and then finished it from the hull on up. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the hulls yeah, are GRP. And uh, I, I, I like that idea because no doubt we would be beaching the boat uh, many times in the future. And ply and epoxy is a very good, I have no problem with it, it's a very good resilient uh, material. But uh, I know that I would have been pretty um, pretty worried every time the boat took the beach, it worried that the, the bottom sheathing would get pierced um, by a stone or a rock or something sharp and, and that water might be getting in. So in some respects, the, uh, the, the hulls being GRP made it um, a little bit more able to take the rough and tough um, if, if it needed. So, yeah, we, we, we've got the GRP hulls, 
And then we fitted everything else out, all the bulkheads and floor pan and the coach roof and decks, all out of ply and epoxy and sheathed. And then the beams were a uh, composite of plywood and mahogany top and bottom and uh, made into I-beams to go across. So I'm looking at a picture, and it's showing building the cabin tops. So you had the fiberglass hull underneath that, and then you added the cabin tops above that. And how long did it take you to to build the boat? A build time was about eight to nine months, uh, about twice as long as we anticipated. Um, the the reality of getting part time work to uh, to keep funding it as we went crept in, and also the reality of building a boat through a UK winter where, you know, you're fighting the temperatures because all the, obviously the resins and the glues work a lot better uh, up, up at an ambient temperature. So we, were, we, we had to sort of fight all of that. And it was the first sort of boat that I'd built at that age as well, um, at, uh, at age 21. So it, uh, we learned a lot of lessons, and uh, we, you know, we, we look back now and we could have built it a lot quicker. But, um, but she was built strong. We had, uh, we had full intentions of what we wanted to do with the boat in our mind, so we didn't skimp on any detail or any part of the structure. In fact, we, we overbuilt her. We went down to a couple of the, uh, the, the Polynesian Catamaran Association meetings that were going on, basically all warm Warren fanatics that get together every now and again and share their their ideas and their photos and their stories of adventures to inspire other builders. And uh, I showed a few photos of what we were doing with with Cookie, and uh, and most people thought we were building an icebreaker at the time. So uh, that gave us a good bit of confidence that we're on the right track. Now, where did you sleep on the boat? Did you sleep in one of the pontoons? Yes, down below in the hull, um, you've got a sliding deck hatch. And you go down, down below, and there is a, 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 a bunk or a floorboard level at uh, pretty much waterline level. And in below, in, inside the boat is, is long and lean like a big, like a, like a single person crawl tent for mountaineering. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a bunk space down below. And you've got pretty much about two and a half, three feet of uh, sort of shoulder width. Once you're on the bunk, and uh, not much uh, headroom, you can't really sit upright. You've got to wiggle your way down into the bunk, and you wiggle your way back up to um, to the space of the hull underneath the main hatch. Because even sitting up uh, down below under the main hatch, your head does protrude up above deck level by about sort of uh, five or six inches. So, so in the early days when we launched the boat. Um, it was it was pretty raw because we just had the uh, opening deck hatches straight to the sky, so whenever it was raining or any any sort of water over the decks meant that you had uh, all the hatches shut. Uh, and it wasn't until later on in the voyage that uh, I spent the time and effort to build proper dodgers, um, little canopies, little spray hoods over the uh, each deck hatch, so that uh, it made it a little bit more. User-friendly uh, to live aboard because then you could actually sit upright down below with the hatches open and not get faces full of water when you're sailing. So let's move on from the building of the boat onto the first part of your adventure. While you were building the boat, you were able to get sponsorship for the full voyage, or how did that happen, and, and where did you take off from, and 
start taking us around the world? Well, Franz, um, as we're building the boat, uh, I made a, I think I made the decision just before we launched that uh, it was it was very hard work being on the campaign trail, if you like, just trying to get sponsorship all the time and having having that negativity thrown back at you all the time, you know, giving you well wishes, but uh, not truly believing that you are um, capable of doing what you say. And so I think that's when my stubborn streak perhaps kicked in where, you know, I sort of backed off then and decided to say, well, you know, well, I'll, I'll just show everybody what we can do. And so we didn't try getting sponsorship anymore. We decided that we'd just get ahead and, and just take off and maybe it would snowball. So, so we launched the boat in I'm June 1991 and uh, we embarked on a couple of months of sea trials along the coast of, uh, of Devon and on our way down to Cornwall. Just getting the boat worked up and, and learning her ways and, and getting out in progressively stronger conditions testing out the equipment excuse me and um at that time it was quite a quite a poignant time because my stepbrother barnes decided that really that 11th hour the trip wasn't going to be for him he decided he got too claustrophobic down below he got um a bit more seasick than he uh, thought he would do and uh he he i think he suffered from a real crisis of confidence of heading off with uh, very little money in our pockets out into the big wide world. So, so he, he also had a, a very good relationship going on at the time, whereas I was still footloose and fancy free. Um, Barnes had a, uh, quite a long, steady girlfriend at the time, so he had other pressures to, um, to sway his decision as well. In the end, he decided to, to stay behind in the UK, and at that point, I was faced with the decision that I'd never really contemplated single-handed sailing. But at that age, you sort of take it in your stride. And I must admit, I remember at the time thinking, well, you know, heck, I've read loads of books. There's all these famous guys out there, the Knox Johnsons, the the Che Blythes, the Morticiers that have all done epic voyages single-handed. So, you know, I must be able to take it on. And so I decided to, to head off. I thought it would be too hard to, to find other crew at that uh 11th hour and I decided to head off uh, on my own and, and see if we could um, could uh, could hack it and so we, we we stopped our way down the coast to uh, to Land's End uh, the UK there and um, waiting for a weather window to get across you know that summer it was almost incessant uh, southwesterlies and lots of drizzle and then finally we got a break and we went across Bay of Biscay down to to uh, northern Spain with, uh, with some northwesterlies and then finally some northeasterlies and uh, got a good gale. Got a good gale the last 24 hours before getting in. We got sort of a force eight from the east on the beam and that was the first sort of good test of the boat and uh, what she could stand up to. So tell me the sails that you had on board. Did you have a storm sail? What sails did you carry on board? On the early days, friends, we had a a mainsail, and one jib, and a spinnaker. So the main had two reefs, and the jib was a working jib size, and it had a reef halfway up it. So it wasn't roller furling, it was a hanked-on jib, and it had the good old-fashioned 
the new cringles uh, halfway up the sail, and you had to roll up the bottom into a sausage and tie it off with reef points. Uh, so fairly rudimentary on the sail department, but again, it was always on a on a very tight budget that we put the boat together, and uh, pretty much I set off from the UK with 600 pounds uh, to see how far I could get. So on your first big storm in the Bay of Biscay, how did you handle that? I mean, I, I'm looking at a catamaran, and the bad thing about a catamaran, if it goes over, it's not coming back up. So how did you deal with that? If it was on your beam, did you uh, throw out a drogue, ride it out? How did you deal with that storm? Well, being being further down, we, we were off, you know, not too far from the northern coast of Spain, so it was pretty pretty steep little waves, you know, getting up to about 10 feet, that sort of thing. Um, I just had uh, a reef jib up at the time, just jogging along at about three knots, four knots. The wind vane was steering because um, we didn't have any electrics aboard uh, back in the early days. Couldn't afford anything high tech, couldn't afford GPS because back in the day then, the old the old black and white Garmin's used to cost about 2,000 pounds. So I had a uh, sextant and kerosene lamps down below. And uh, that was pretty much the... Uh, the technology aboard and a little, little shortwave radio to be able to pick up the BBC World Service and get your time signal. So we were just jogging along with the wind vane uh, coping and steering, uh, but uh, we were only making three or four knots. And I was uh, about midday, I snatched a very quick um, sight in between a spray and that sort of thing, uh, and just to get a quick latitude as we closed down onto Spain. And the boat was handling it okay. She was getting quite a lot of water over the decks, but um, but uh, I had the uh, decision to make whether, you know, by being 40 miles away at midday, we're sort of closing the coast. I didn't want to get too close uh, under darkness. I could either decide to perhaps put up more sail and push the boat a bit quicker and see if we could get in at um, before sundown or whether we decide to just keep jogging along under the very small jib and uh, run into the shipping lanes and go round Finisterre and uh, ca- carry on down the coast that night and pull into somewhere like Bayona uh, further down. So at that point, I thought, well, the boat was handling it okay. Uh, she's uh, she's under, under very little sail, but uh, what I did was I put the double reef main up as well as the reef jib, so all of the, the smaller sails pretty much we had. And just to see what she would do and uh, whether she would handle it and, uh, and look, at the, um, look at the way she performed to see if we could get back in or to get into the port uh, of La Coruña on the north coast there before sundown. And uh, it, was a, it was a real great eye-opener um, to see what the boat could do because we, uh, we averaged about nine, ten knots over those four hours. Because as we got closer to the coast, the seas went down, the wind did subside a little bit. It's probably blowing more four, six, seven. Um, but uh, but she was um, basically had the bit between her teeth and uh, it was pretty much constant water and spray in your face. <laughs> but uh, she, she coped fine. She didn't give me any hair-raising experiences of flying a hull. She had to both, both hulls very firmly glued to the, uh, to the ocean. And we made it in, so it was a real good, um, good boost early on to see what the boat could do and boost the confidence. All right, I'm on your website, and I'm, uh, I'm just going to list for the audience what you have as equipment that you had on board, so people know how bare bones that you were. So this is all your onboard equipment: a compass, 
uh, a speedo, a log, basically a trailing log, a depth sounder, a sextant, but it's a plastic sextant. It's a Davis Mark 15 plastic sextant, a Sony shortwave receiver, about 60 charts, code flags for communication, and a handheld VHF. Uh, but I guess you didn't get the VHF until you got to the uh, to the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't get. Um, I put a battery and a solar panel on on board the boat from New Zealand onwards on the second half of the uh, of the journey. Okay. All right. Then for the stove, you had a Coleman Spirit stove. So that would have been, I guess, by Spirit you mean uh, an alcohol stove, uh, a hurricane lamp. And then you did get some electric lamps, again, probably when you put the solar panel up, but that was later on. Uh, and later on, you had a 55-amp battery and a 15-watt solar panel uh, in New Zealand. Then you had a brass mouth horn, uh, some, a homemade 12-volt halogen lamp for your spotlight. For your bedding, you had two foam camp rolls and sleeping bags and a beanbag pillow. Uh, some repair kits, uh, the sails, the anchors, a 15-pound CQR, and also a 12-pound Danforth with, uh, with the roads. Uh, you, for the safety, you had two red parachute anchors and one white collision and one orange smoke flare, a couple life jackets, a homemade drogue, homemade sea anchor, fire blankets and fire extinguisher, First aid kit, harness and lifeline, solar still, and then you had a self-steering gear. Uh, and I guess you uh, made that yourself. Is that right? The self-steering gear. Yeah, yeah. I had a, uh, a tip-off when we were building the boat. Somebody uh, told me there was a good book out um, by a guy called Bill Belcher, and it was titled something like uh, "Wind Vane Steering" and how to use them and how to build them. And he had a couple of designs. So we, we, we built one, uh, Barnes and I, uh, before we launched the boat. And uh, then it was a case of learning the, the beautiful relationship between Harry, which is what we uh, nicknamed the uh, wind vane, and the boat cookie. So it uh, took a long time. I was the, I was the instigator. And uh, I put the two of them and introduced them together. And then it took a lot of tweaking and adjustment and cajoling to get them both to sort of talk to each other and become uh, in in a in good um, sequence together. <laughs> yeah, I named my uh, my vain gear vanity because she's so vain. But, <laughs> but <laughs> oh, very good. So anyway, and then you had a dinghy. That's that's all you had on board. So when people start dreaming of of sailing the the world. You don't have to go in the most modern boats. You can do it in, in some fairly basic, with some fairly basic equipment and a basic boat. So, all right. So now you're in, um, now in Spain or Portugal. Where did you hop off to go across the Atlantic from? Was it which, where did you leave from? Where was your big hop off point? Well, the big hop off point was uh, the Canaries, but uh, I kind of suffered a, quite a big roller coaster of emotions. Uh, once I got to Spain, um, obviously the early the early trip across Biscay was was pretty 
uh, pretty intense and a big eye-opener of just what I was up against living on board uh, such a small catamaran at sea. So I learned a lot of lessons. That gale taught me that um, the boat gets very, very wet. And, of course, every time I go out on deck and go down below, of course, you're taking all of that wet down with you. So I learned a few things um, quite quickly about um, keeping as dry as possible. My, my bed got wet. My charts got wet, my, my almanac got wet, and, uh, and everything seemed to be sodden. And, uh, and it's amazing how your morale suffers as soon as you don't have a, a nice, dry, warm bed to go to. So, so I learned that you've got to work hard at keeping it uh, dry and, and keeping a, a little haven of, of, of warm dryness uh, down below. So in Spain, I went out and bought about a dozen beach towels and just had them on station down below to mop up everything and mop me off as I came, come in and out of the boat. And that became a routine forevermore while I was sailing cookie at sea. Uh, you know, it gets boring, it gets very monotonous, but the alternative is that you, you, your, your onboard living conditions just start spiraling downwards, and it can take your morale down with it. So, so these were some of the early lessons I learned. And... Uh, but once I got to the Canaries, I'd, I'd coast hop down Spain, down Portugal, a few days trip out to Madeira, and then a few day trip down to, uh, to, to the Canaries. And once I got to the Canaries, I, I really had a tough time because every time I went to sea, I, had, um, I just found I was, I was spiraling into a very negative uh, outlook on life. I got lonely, I got depressed, I got miserable, the small things seemed to get on top of me, and uh, I started taking it personally, shouting at the sea, shouting at the waves, <laughs> and, and just being very negative about it all and, and, and not enjoying it at all. And so facing the big wide Atlantic, I thought I, I, I wouldn't be able to cope. I wouldn't be able to, if I can't cope for five days between harbors along the, um, along the European coast, how am I going to get 30 days or or 25 days across the, um, the Atlantic. So I put Cookie up for sale. And uh, I was there for about a month in Lanzarote. And luckily, the boat didn't sell, in hindsight. At the time, I didn't feel that way. But uh, without the boat selling, you know, plan B was the only other option, was to work harder at just trying to get a crew, trying to find somebody that I could, uh, could somehow convinced that sailing across the Atlantic on a 21-foot cat was a good idea. So um, I went over to Gran Canaria, to Las Palmas and Gran Canaria, which is the big sort of crew-swapping place, big marina there. There's a big jump-off spot for a lot of the, um, lot of the boats uh, heading across the Atlantic. So I put up a notice up in the marina, a crazy crew wanted for a you know, crazy catamaran trip. And along came Klaus the crazy German. He was about the same age as me, about 22 at the time, and uh, full of spirit, full of, um, full of adventure. And he signed up immediately and said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm the one. I'm, I want to come. And uh, so we then spent about um, three weeks together sailing the other, the other islands of the Canaries down to Tenerife, La Gomera, and then La Palma before we then uh, set off across the Atlantic. All right. So tell us about the Atlantic crossing. Was, you're in the trade winds. At what time of year did you did you do your crossing? Well, friends, we had a pretty awful crossing, really. We um, we set off um, 
pretty much the 1st of December, which is a pretty you know, classic time of year. A lot of people set off uh, for the month of December to get across and get to the Caribbean by New Year, that sort of thing. But um, we headed off, and within about three days heading out from La Palma, we ran headlong into a, uh, into a westerly gale. And so we were riding it out on the sea anchor. We actually put a sea anchor out for about, uh, I think, a full 24 hours, just, just stopping ourselves getting blown backwards. And later on, when we caught up with some of our friends across the other side, it was, in some ways, we were almost better off being out at sea because a lot of the, the, um, the harbors in the Canaries they, um, they got torn up, you know, there's big swells coming in, boats were dragging anchor all over the place, and there was quite a lot of damage. Um, down like Los Cristianos in the south of uh, Tenerife got a real hammering. So we, we just hung out on the sea anchor. The boat was very safe, very, uh, took it nicely in a stride. It was just a bit boring. Just played a lot of cards down below with Klaus. But ultimately the boat was, was in, in good shape and very safe. So in some ways, um, you know, in hindsight, um, even though we didn't know it at the time, we were in a pretty good position being out at sea with the, uh, with, the with the gale. Well, westerlies are fairly rare, aren't they? Yeah, this was just a, a year where there was um, a couple of sort of depressions that, that just span off and, and was pushed way south of the, um, you know, the typical route that they take up by the Azores. They were just pushed south. And so... So yeah, we had uh, we had that, and the, the trade winds were messed up for quite a while after that depression came through. We even had another period of westerlies after I think the um, in the third week of our crossing as well. Otherwise, we just got fitful winds and, and thunderstorms coming through and, and all sorts. In fact, it was only when we were a thousand miles out from the um, the Caribbean that we actually got some steady trade winds. All right. So, lots of exercise in reefing and unreefing sails. It sounds like then. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of exercise and patience as well, and and uh, we we learned a couple of things because out at sea sometimes when the winds are so fitful with thunderstorms and you just get little puffs and there's too much of a seaway and you're trying to get somewhere. It's, I think as a sailor, it is the most frustrating time when you're trying to make some headway and the the waves are just rattling all of the uh, wind out of the sails i learned it's much better to pull all the sails down jump over the side have a swim forget about sailing until a decent uh, decent enough breeze fills in again that you can actually use and uh, after one of these episodes klaus and i were you know having a cup of tea and playing cards or something like that and we'd left our fishing lines dangling over the side and uh, and as we took off sailing again we got strikes on both lines with, you know, nice three foot long, uh, Dorado. And, uh, and, you know, we landed, uh, we had, we had three hooks out and we landed two nice big, um, Dorados. So it just goes to show that by stopping and have having the, um, the hooks just dangling there must've piqued their curiosity to come and have a look and see what they were. And then as we took off, it was too much for them. They couldn't resist and they just, you know, snapped at the um snapped at the lures and, and were caught so we we knew we knew from then on that if we really got hungry and we're starving we just have to stop the boat for a while let the um hooks dangle and then go sailing again <laughs> <laughs> what were you using for a lure 
Just, um, you know, little plastic squid, uh, that sort of thing. Or, or when, when they got lost, we were making our homemade ones out of little bits of um, um, wool, colored wool and uh, silver foil and those sorts of things. Okay. They weren't very persnickety then, huh? No, no. I, I, my, my, my take on fishing lures, Franz, is that the more brightly colored they are and the more garish and that sort of thing, they're just to attract the actual customer into the shop to buy them. All right. Talk to me about water. Did you have enough water on board for you and Klaus on the Atlantic crossing or how did you get your water? We did. Yeah. We, um, my water bottles on cookie, um, and water tanks basically are, are recycled, uh, Coke or soda bottles, uh, one and a half liter size. And they, cause, cause the bilges are a V shaped with the hull and, uh, so they stack very nicely. You start with one at the bottom, then two, and then three, and they all stack above each other. And we took uh, 75 liters in, uh, in those Coke bottles, and then we had two sort of 25-liter or five-gallon jerry cans as well. So in total, we had 120 liters to go with. And uh, we were actually fine. We were at sea for, I think, 28 days um, crossing, so we were very slow. But um, we still had a good. We, we still have five gallons left by the time we got to the other end, and we we were careful with the water. We were we were conscious that we needed to make it last, but we weren't on strict rations at any point. But uh, the food was a different story. We were really starting to get pretty low on food for the last um, last uh, three or four days. Um, we'd pretty much run out of everything, and we were just sort of making uh, whatever we could last. Just making up some some very much flat dough type um, bread on a on a on a fry pan on the stove, and adding a bit of um, salt or a bit of sugar, and and that was about it. <laughs> so let me ask you a question, and I'm just going to relate my experience. When I sailed across the Atlantic, uh, it was me and two other crew members. Uh, we always seemed to find we would catch tuna when we were going balls to the walls. I mean, we were. We were, when we're pretty much almost out of control with speed, uh, that's when the the tuna seemed to uh, to strike, and uh, so we landed a couple. We uh, we landed one blue fin and two yellow fin tuna on our on our crossing. But I noticed uh, we we would just gorge ourselves on on fish on the protein. It was just such good good tasting fish. But I noticed that as soon as I ate a lot of protein, I, I became very thirsty. And I ended up eat, drinking a lot more water than I normally would, which, which on our normal diet would have been pasta and bread and, and a lot of carbohydrates. When I added a lot of protein to my diet, I, became, I ended up drinking a lot more water than I would normally. Did, did you notice that with the Dorado? Um, we might have done. We, we, I mean, we didn't, catch, we didn't catch a steady amount of them. Of them um, you know, they were very much in fits and spurts. So, um, so yeah, to be honest, um, Franz, I, I didn't, I didn't notice anything markedly enough to sort of, I guess, make a sort of real comment or a judgment about it at the time. I don't think. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, but I can understand it for sure. So, where was your landfall when you got to the Caribbean? We made a landfall in Saint Martin. 
And uh, the big reason for that is I'd been there a couple of times before. I, I knew the place very well. And I knew that uh, you could get work there because Klaus and I had pretty much clubbed together the last of our funds in uh, La Palma before we took off. So we were just about on the, um, on the prefix of Caribbean or bust. Um, so we had um, probably about $20, $20 each or 25 bucks each, something like that, when we got to St. Martin. Enough to head out and, and have, a, have, have a little bit of a binge when we first got there and, and eat a bit of rich food and buy a bottle of rum and that sort of thing. But um, straight away we went off and uh, bought a big sack of rice and some more fish hooks so that if we didn't find work soon, then we could still <laughs> do a bit of fishing and, and live off fish and rice for a little while before work came in. But um, both of us pretty much uh, got a job within about a week of, uh, of getting there. So let's stop it there, and I'm going to get you back for another interview to carry us on from St. Martin on. Is that okay with you, Rory? That's okay, Franz, yeah. Thanks, Rory. I appreciate your time. Okay, cheers. Talk to you later. So that's the first part of my interview with Rory. I did the interview a little differently this time. I just played my introduction, got right into the content, and now I'm going to do my quick advertisement at the end. Uh, if you're studying for the if you're studying for the ASA 101, 103, or 104, I have a series of audio lessons available to you. Also, if you're just learning to sail, or if you want to sign up for my email list, I do provide eight free lessons for the ASA 101 series, and those lessons are going to teach you a lot of the terminology of sailing some of the maneuvers and, and other items. It's half of my ASA 101 course, which is free. And hopefully, if you like them, you'll buy some of the other ones. All right. So I'm going to get Rory back for another interview and cover areas west of St. Martin. If you have comments, drop me a note, franz1 at medsailor.com. If you have suggestions for people I might want to interview, pass it along. Get out there and go sailing. Joe, you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know? Ha, ha, ha.